0: And that was why he said not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightfully so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, You also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thanks be to God. You can be seated. All right. Well, we are about to begin a section of the gospel known as the Farewell Discourse, and that is the long speech that Jesus gives at the Last Supper. Um, It is the speech where he says some of the most important things that he ever says to his disciples because this is their last moment to sit and relax and be together. This is really a pivotal moment for him. This is a time when Jesus is going to do some of his final preparations, give some of his final instructions and teaching, because he is setting them up for their future building the church. He is sending them out and preparing them for their future life and their future ministry. But in the lead up to this, right before this big, long speech, he opens up. With an illustration. He starts what we just read with this hands-on display that is meant to burn the image into their minds of what he's about to say. And we know that works. Illustrations are helpful, right? Hands-on things are helpful for us to learn. It's, it's one thing to learn about electricity in science class, to study about neutrons and protons and how they flow to learn about amps and and wattage and all that stuff and it's another thing to stick your finger in a socket right it's one thing to hear a lesson and it's another thing to be shocked and that's what jesus is doing here he is shocking them he is showing not just telling and that's what this is all about. This action, it is meant to prepare them for their future ministry and to prepare us for all the ministry that Christ has for us. It's, it's meant to prepare us. And so he does that by giving us three things. First, he gives us a picture of his glory. Second, he gives us a presentation of his love. And then third, he gives us a prescription For our lives. So that's how he's gonna prepare us this morning. That's the images he's gonna give a picture of his glory, a presentation of his love, and a prescription for our lives. So let's talk about his glory first. What do we see here in this passage? That John, right up front, wants us to know that behind the scenes, before Jesus does anything, in his mind, he is fully aware of who he is, where he comes from, and that is leading to his actions verse 3 it says jesus knew that the father had put all things under his power and that he had come from god and was returning to god jesus is all powerful that's what this is saying and we're told in this moment he's fully aware of that he is he is mindful of his power of his eternal nature He knows where he came from. He came from God. He knows his power that that all things were under him. Paul, in the book of Colossians, puts even more words to this idea. He tells us who Jesus really is. He says that the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. That's who Jesus is. That's who we are dealing with in this passage. That means that, that he is God incarnate, that no man or woman who has ever walked the face of the earth has come anywhere close to possessing. That kind of power. And it says, because of that, because of who he was and all that power that he had, he got up, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. And after that, he poured water into a basin and he began to wash the disciples' feet and dry them with a towel that was wrapped around him. Now think about the powerful people that you know of in the world today. Get in your mind a picture of one of those people. Maybe it's somebody with a tremendous amount of political power. Maybe a king or a queen or a president. Or maybe it's somebody who has a lot of financial power. Maybe one of the world's multi-billionaires. Or maybe someone who has a lot of social power, like a a celebrity or a famous athlete, whoever it is in your mind, as you think about them, you realize that those are people who have privilege. Those are people who have high positions in the world because that's what power brings us. It brings us positions. It brings us privilege. And if you have power, well, people, they bow down to you. They jockey for position so they can get close to you. They want to get into your good graces. They want to give you, what, the the best seat at the restaurant. You skip all the lines, don't you? Everybody wants to be your friend. Everybody's at your service. And most of the time, power, it changes the way you relate to everyone else. There was a video that went a little bit viral in the last couple of weeks of king charles as he's signing the documents for his his new position and maybe some of you saw it where he was getting a little irritated because the servants weren't moving the pins fast enough for his taste and it wasn't the best look right it wasn't the most endearing moment for this new guy but at the same time nobody was surprised right that is what you expect That's what you expect from someone who, for 73 years, has been waited on hand and foot. That's how a king is supposed to behave. That's what powerful people do. But that's not what God does. That is not what Christ does. If there ever... Was someone on earth who deserved to put his feet up and demand that somebody wash them? It was Jesus. And truth be told, if he did do that, if Jesus had done that in this moment, the disciples would have washed his feet because they knew who he was. They had seen his glory, they'd seen the miracles, they'd seen people come back from the dead. They knew that Jesus was great. That's why Peter makes a big deal about this. That's why he protests so much. He doesn't want to see Jesus humiliate himself. A servant's job, it's not fitting for a king. It doesn't make any sense that he would do that. But Jesus explains here that this moment is about something much bigger. This moment is about something a lot bigger than just a simple foot washing but it represents a journey that is already well underway. It represents this moment. It, it points us towards the entire trajectory, the entire shape of Christ's ministry and his mission. Right? We just read about it a second ago when we were reading those Westminster Catechism questions. It, it told us that all of Jesus' earthly ministry is a path down it's a road that leads downward first down from heaven to earth down from eternity into our temporary world down from godliness to a human life and then what kind of human life it wasn't a glamorous life he wasn't a king he wasn't a rich man he was poor, and he wasn't respected or revered, at least not for very long, right? He was despised. He was rejected. He didn't live a long and happy life. He, he lived a miserable life, and he died a painful death at an early age, bearing the weight of the world's sin. And that's the glory of the gospel. That is the upside-down nature of the kingdom of God, where he tells us the first is going to be last, and the last is going to be first. There is not a clearer picture of that than this one right here. In this moment, Jesus Christ, the creator, the glorious God, fully aware of his power of his place in the universe, he kneels down. And he grabs in his hand a dirty, smelly foot. This is the glory of the way Jesus uses his power. How does he use his power? Well, not to enhance his position, but instead he uses his power to lower himself to go lower than anyone else could possibly go so that he could lift us up, even the dirtiest and the smelliest among us. See, true heavenly power, it is the opposite of the world's power. True eternal glory, it's not about lights, it's not about fame, it's not about prosperity, it's not about popularity, it is about redemption. It's about restoration. It is about cleaning people off so that they can be reunited with a holy and perfect and loving Heavenly Father. So that's what we see first here. It is a, a picture of his glory. The second thing we see is a, a presentation of his love. That's the other thing. John wants us to know this just as much as he wants us to see this picture of his his glory and servanthood right up front. He wants us to recognize that this whole thing is about love. Verse 1, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Okay, so what is love? Well, love is more than an emotion, right? We all know that. Love is, you know, we have this modern conception of love, that love is kind of a feeling, it's this, this kind of butterflies, this romance, feeling a certain way about somebody, but, but that's not love. Love in the Bible is counting someone else's needs above your own. Love in the Bible is a conscious decision to consider another person before you consider yourself. That's love. It's a a conscious choice to consider someone else more than you consider yourself. And that's hard to do. That's really hard to do. It it takes effort. That's why when couples get married, we have to make vows, right? We have to make promises. Because left to ourselves, our love, it tends to be very transactional. You know what I mean? Transactional, that, that I will love someone as long as I'm getting something else out of it. Right? It's easy to love someone when there are benefits from it. It's easy to love when it's for better or for richer. It's easy to love when romance is in the air. But it's hard to love when it feels like a one-way street, isn't it? It's hard to love when you don't know what you're getting back. And that's why if you, you know, pick up your average book or read a blog on how to refresh a struggling marriage, you'll get all sorts of advice about things you should try to do. Do the love dare, whatever. Take 50 days and do something nice every single day. Buy some flowers. uh, Be nice. (laughs) Say nice things. Cook a nice meal every once in a while. And when you start to do nice things, eventually, hopefully, they'll start to do nice things back. That's what I mean by transactional. If you love me, Well then I'll love you back. But that's not real love. That's not how real love is supposed to work. And when we see it right here, we see Jesus' love is totally different than that. Look at the scene one more time. Let's go back and, and think about it. Do you realize it was totally undignified for Jesus to wrap himself with a towel? And wash these men's feet it would have been completely unheard of socially speaking it would have been extremely uncomfortable now I'm a pastor I've been a pastor for a while now and in modern day life I have been to the occasional foot-washing service and it makes me uncomfortable but probably not for the right reasons (laughs) it makes me uncomfortable because we just don't live in a world where people will touch your feet that often right And I don't like it. I'm ticklish. It's kind of gross. I'm a little self-conscious. I'm uncomfortable, but I don't think I get the meaning the way I'm supposed to. See, these guys, their skin would have been crawling the whole time. But not because they didn't like having their feet washed. That was very normal. That happened all the time in their culture. Their skin was crawling because the rabbi shouldn't do it. It was unheard of for the rabbi to wash, do a servant's job, to touch his disciples' nasty feet. And so Peter, he protests. He doesn't want it. He doesn't want anything to do with this until Jesus tells him the meaning. He says at the end of verse 8, unless I wash you, you have no part of me. Unless I wash you, you have no part of me. You may not realize it, but that one line is the gospel in a nutshell. That's pretty much the whole thing. If you want to have a part in Jesus' saving work, he has to wash you. He has to clean us. Now, that's really different from what other religions of the world would tell you. It's very different from what another worldview might suggest. right? One would say, if you, if you want to be clean, well, meditate this way, pray this way, go to these classes, do this thing. If you want God to accept you, it'll say, follow these rules, check off these boxes. But do you realize it is all just the same transactional thing we find everywhere else when you perform then I will save when you do this when you love me then I will love you but Jesus says the only way you can have a part of me is if I wash you The only way you can have a part of me at all is if you recognize that you can't possibly do anything here. You're bringing nothing to the table. He says, I've got to do it. The only thing that you can do is receive. And that's amazing news, guys. That is glorious news. That is such good news. Because it means that we can't do anything to make God love us anymore. He is not asking us to buy him flowers or to grovel or to complete some checklist of rules. He is only asking that we would admit that apart from him, we're covered in filth. Apart from him, our sin is Impossible to recover from. That we are repulsive to God and opposed to him. We are unwelcome in his presence. But he can cleanse us. He wants to cleanse us. He says he must cleanse us. Amen? And if that kind of one-way love doesn't already take your breath away, think about this. Think about what was ahead for Jesus in his relationship with these guys. What does it tell us in verse 10? It says, Jesus, in the middle of this, right, he says, And you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said not everyone was clean. So offhandedly, he just happens to mention that he knew that Judas was there and Judas was going to betray him to death. He washed his feet. And what about Peter? What's Peter going to do in the next few chapters? He's going to deny him. And the rest of them. (laughs) As soon as the heat is on, they're all going to run away as Jesus is tortured and killed. In other words, these people, he knows that they are about to hurt him deeply. Now, if it's hard for us to love when we feel like we're getting nothing in return, what about when people are actively hurting us? What about when it's with people who we know are only going to wound us? And that's what these guys are going to do. And look at it. He, he still loves them. Even knowing what they would do to him, he still loves them. And that means that he still loves you, even knowing what you've done. Even knowing what you're going to do, he still loves you. See, the gospel isn't just that we're bringing nothing to the table, but it is worse than nothing. We are God's enemies apart from him, it says. And even once we're saved, we are still a mess. We still struggle. We still have all this sin in our lives. We have nothing to give to God. There's that old confession. Maybe you've heard it before. Sometimes you read it in a church service where, he, where this Puritan prays, even my repentance needs repenting of and my tears need washing. But Jesus, he loves us and he washes us. This glorious, almighty, powerful king of the universe bends down and he takes our dirty, smelly lives patiently in his hands and he washes us that's what his love does and then the third thing we see here is a prescription for our lives verse 12 it says when he'd finished washing their feet he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you?" he asked them. "You call me teacher and lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. So like any good teacher, Jesus makes sure that the people understand what he's doing. That They understand this is more than just a lesson in theology, but this is something that's meant to be lived out. Everybody say lived out. out. This is a model for us. This is something we're supposed to do. It's how we're supposed to live. This is how the church is supposed to run. And sadly, I think today, there are no shortage of Christians who seem to have missed the memo entirely. That instead of using our power to serve other people, I I see so many Christians in these positions of of privilege uh, who are doing just the opposite. Right? Instead of using their power to reach out to the marginalized, to care for the outcast, to lift up the poor, there seem to be a lot of these people in the public sphere who are power-hungry. Instead of trying to serve, they're trying to enforce their will upon the masses. Who seem to care a lot more about gaining social influence and popularity than seeing God's kingdom come. I see a lot of Christians who use their power just like the rest of the world does, but maybe with a little twist of Christian morality on top of it. But if Jesus, the King of kings, and the Lord of lords, the eternal God, the Savior who gave us everything that we have, if he is willing to give up his privilege and take this low position as a servant to wash us, well, that means there is no position too low for us to take. There is no job. There is no mission. There is no task that is beneath our status, right? If he's gone there, it's an honor that we get to follow. Amen? And that means that starts first in the church. That starts first right here in this congregation. It starts with the way that we relate to each other. We read that passage from uh, Philippians to open up the service, but that's how John says we are supposed to treat one another, right? Philippians chapter 2, he says, In your relationships with each other, you should have the mind of Christ, who, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, but made himself nothing Taking the very image of a servant being made in human likeness and found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. This means that we live humble lives together. Humility, it is a spiritual gift. It it is the gift of being honest, of being willing to admit that you're still a mess It's willing to admit that sometimes you're wrong about things. It's the ability to, when we're relating with one another, surrender our own rightness sometimes. And consider that our our brother or our sister is more important than ourselves. And that's hard to do. But when the power of the cross is at work within us, that is who we're supposed to be. And if it can't happen in the church, where else is it going to happen, guys? It starts here, but it doesn't stay here. Because it's also a call for us to go out and to love our neighbors. We should consider our neighbors' lives more important than our own. And let me just say here, I'm really proud of you guys right now. I am, am so excited about how willing and uh and energized you all have been as we're trying to start this new service next week as we're having a a, trying to build a space where we can share this building a little bit and reach out to people who don't feel like they belong here you all have made that possible you have made that happen and that that is thrilling and and you know we need more of that you know jesus he said that his opponents do you remember what they called him They called him a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And, man, I would would just love it if our church had that kind of reputation. (laughs) Wouldn't that be awesome? Like, Sinner Church, that is a rowdy place. (laughs) I see sinners going in and out of that place all the time. But the only way that's going to happen is if we start washing people's feet. The only way that's going to happen is we start getting down in the trenches and sharing our lives with the kinds of people that religious people think are undesirable. We've got to love our neighbors. And you know what? Not just our neighbors, right? We've got to love our enemies. You know, that's, that's really the secret sauce. <laughs> that's where the fire is because that kind of amazing Love can only come from the gospel. That kind of love that really knows no boundaries whatsoever, right? When Christ laid down his life for us, we were his enemies. And if we believe that, if we know that, only then can we go out and love others that way. In Romans, Paul says, we have, he says, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. And in doing this, you he will heap burning coals on his head. It says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. We have to love our enemies. And, and you might be thinking, maybe some of you, I don't really have any enemies, Pastor. But I want you to think about that. I want you to just think about maybe some of those people in this world who are just very different from you. Maybe their lifestyle is really different from yours. Maybe their politics are really different from yours. Or their culture. You just just can't understand it. And if you're being honest, sometimes it offends you. Maybe it's that person whose social media posts always get your blood boiling. Or maybe somebody in your life who you feel like is just constantly dragging you. Jesus... Washed the feet of a man who sold his life for a fistful of coins. And right after he did it, he said, I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. That's terrifying. And honestly, that's impossible at least in our own strength, we can't love that way unless he washes us, unless we get so close to him every day that his provision and his power and his protection are more real to us than the things that we fear the most. But man, if that happens if that happens to you in your life, if that happens to us as a church, I honestly believe there is nothing that can stop us. There is nothing that God couldn't do through this church. So let me ask you as we close, do you know what I'm talking about? Have you experienced that kind of cleansing in your life? Or do you need some washing today? Do you need to let Jesus wash your feet? Do you need to let him cleanse you of a judgmental and unloving heart? Do you need to let him cleanse you of a selfish and transactional love? Well, if so, let's let's come before him in prayer. And let's ask him to do that. Let's ask him to wash us And then empower us to go out and wash others. To wash our feet here in the church. To wash our neighbor's feet outside of these walls. Let's not just teach people about Christ's love. Let's shock them with it. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would work powerfully. In this church, I pray for this service, even as we have seen new members joining with us today. Lord, would we see more? Father, would we see people coming here and hearing the gospel for the first time? Would we see people baptized into the faith? Lord, I pray that you would work in our lives as individuals. Lord, help us to love our neighbors with compassionate hearts. Lord, wake them up, draw them in and begin a a powerful movement of their spirit here at Center Church. Lord, we pray this in Christ's name.